0: Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and you've turned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And joining me today, I'm absolutely honored to have Marcia Ishi. Itaman, who is a senior scientist with one of the best organizations on the planet, I think, if you want to know about pesticides, it's the Pesticide Action Network of North America, and you are actually based in San Francisco, but your work is truly global. Is that right, Marcia? And welcome, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you, and and, uh, thank you very much for having me. Yes, our work is local and global at the same time as so many of the issues that we are encountering in the world today are.
0: Well, you've got a degree in agroecology, so I think you're very well suited for your position, but maybe listeners don't exactly know what agroecology is, so could you explain that?
1: Sure. Well, very simply put, agroecology can be understood as the science behind sustainable agriculture. More formally, it's often been defined as the science and practice of applying our understanding of ecological concepts, how the ecosystem works, to the study and design and management of what are sustainable agroecosystems.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting that you use the word sustainable. Because I'm such an advocate for media literacy and helping people navigate the information age that we're in right now, the word sustainable has been so loosely thrown around. How do you define sustainable agriculture?
1: Yes, it certainly is being used far and wide and, and often with, with very opposite implications. So for us, sustainability really requires looking at the environmental, economic, social, and cultural implications of what we are doing and ensuring that the actions we are taking today and the processes, whether it's in agriculture or other kinds of systems, are not going to leave future generations or the future of the planet bankrupt or worse off. So we're looking at a way of ensuring that our systems can regenerate themselves and ideally even strengthen and and improve their capacity and their health.
0: You know, it's interesting because one of the major agrochemical companies, I would say probably Monsanto is the leading one, many of their ads state that their work is sustainable. Does genetically engineered food or genetically engineered seed fit with your definition of sustainable agriculture?
1: Well, I think the sustainability that they're talking about is the – the sustainability of their bottom line, and and this is a very short-term view, a very short-term self-serving view, is how fast can we, or how can we ensure that the production, export, and and sales of our products are bringing in the profits that we need to show to our shareholders. And along the way, they, they put out a lot of PR about global environmental goods, but those really unravel under closer examination. So in the example you point out with GMOs, These are products that have been developed by a handful of corporations that have a very tight control over their use and the profits that come back from them. And they have not been shown to increase the sustainability in in the way I'm describing it in any way, shape, or form. They require a great deal of resources and research dollars, millions of research dollars to produce. But in the end, they have not given us any of the... The benefits that uh, the industry, and Monsanto is a good example, uh, that the industry likes to claim. So they talk a lot about, well, we're going to, with our new technology, be able to increase yields and overcome drought and deal with salt in the soil, all kinds of things that we need to reduce poverty and hunger in the world. But at the end of the day, none of these things have come through. So it's really a, a false solution. It's not only that They don't deliver on the promises that they've made, but they suck an enormous amount of resources at a time when we have very few public resources available to throw away. They suck them away from the kinds of really successful and robust solutions that we need in agriculture, such as agroecological and biodiverse organic farming.
0: And that was really the bottom line, I think, from the report that you co-authored, an excellent report that needs much greater dissemination, in my opinion. And the name of that report is the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development. It's a mouthful. The abbreviation is I-A-A-S-T-D. But in that report, you addressed really the central question, which is, What must we do differently to overcome persistent poverty and hunger and achieve equitable and sustainable development and sustain productive and resilient farming in the face of this environmental and climate crisis that we're witnessing today? Tell me about your work on this project, and what were your bottom-line findings?
1: Yeah, so this report, and it's often easier to refer to it as the ISTAD report. It's kind of the equivalent for agriculture as the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is to the climate issue. So this was a massive report produced by over 400 scientists and development experts from more than 80 countries around the world. The research and analysis that went into it took place over a four-year period. There were several open, transparent public review processes, and the final report was concluded in 2008, and its final text was approved at an intergovernmental plenary in Johannesburg, South Africa, in 2008, where 95% of the governments participating approved it. It went over word by word, the summary documents. The only three governments not to approve this report were the United States, Canada and Australia, but all the Europeans, the Latin American countries, the Asian and African countries read through these summary documents, had post deliberations over an entire week, and came to the conclusion that, yes, this reflected the state of the knowledge that we have about precisely this question of what can agriculture do, what are the policies and the approaches, knowledge, science, and technology that we need to be focusing on in order to advance more equitable and sustainable development. So, yes, I was one of those uh, 400 or so co-authors and also worked with the civil society participants. And I think one of the unique, very unique of this report was that it combined both an intergovernmental and a non-governmental process. So government researchers and government agencies and ministries were involved, but so were the perspectives and experience of experts from the private sector, from civil society, from farmer organizations, and research institutions, so the information that was brought together came from a very vast array of fields and sectors very interdisciplinary i think that 's one of the things that makes it very unique and especially rich in comparison to say some of the other reports that have come out. The World Bank issued a, a development report on agriculture you know it 's what it is an interesting report written by a handful of AG economists who work for the World Bank so you get a very clear view of this is you know, the the expressed view and perspective of the World Bank's ag economists. But what the ISTED has done is brought together this vast array of information and, and assessed it carefully for implications, for potential, for real uh, documented impacts, and came up with some very clear findings as to the way forward.
0: Well, the last report that I saw was that we now have – just as many hungry people as we do obese. Over a billion people are now hungry worldwide. And what did your report conclude in terms of what are the answers to the food crisis that we face today and how can we make sure that people are well fed and without destroying the environment in the process?
1: Yes, The report looked very closely at this question of, of food production and food distribution, and it came to the the conclusion, as you were indicating just now, that agriculture is about much more than than yield. It has multiple social, political, cultural, and environmental impacts and benefits. And the reason we have so much poverty and hunger in the world is not because we don't produce enough of it. Uh, There's vast quantities of, of surplus food that is produced in India that is exported, and yet. There are millions and millions of, of hungry and malnourished people in India. The same goes for the U.S. We have large numbers of malnourished uh, people in the United States and children as well. It's not for lack of production because the choices that we are making in what we produce and how we produce it and, and crucially, how its distribution and sale is controlled, and in many cases globally by multinational agribusinesses, these are the reasons why we're seeing the hunger and the malnutrition that we're seeing around the world. It also has to do, hunger basically has to do with poverty. So this report, which included both social and political sciences and, and analyses, came to the conclusion that we do need to be sure that we are producing adequate amounts of food, but we need to do so in a way that is both environmentally sustainable, that can deal with the kinds of environmental stresses we are facing now with climate change and water scarcity and, and with the rapidly diminishing supply of fossil fuels. But we also need to look at the political and social institutions that we have created and how those are worsening social equity in many, in many cases, or what kinds of institutions we need to be having that will actually enhance food democracy, for example, greater local and regional control over our food system.
0: Yeah I I really loved what you wrote about the report and your findings. You said this is a wake-up call for governments and international agencies. The survival of the planet's food systems demands global action to support small-scale farmers, agroecological farming and fair trade. What a wonderful combination of solutions. But what can we as, you know, here we are, we're sitting in the United States, we You and I certainly have, we probably have enough food on our tables. What can we do as citizens to help those in the world that don't have what we have?
1: Well, I think one of the most important things we can do is get involved directly in our own country's food and agricultural policies, because what we do at home has so much impact on the rest of the world, and while the U.S. often likes to position itself as the leader in solving the food crisis. And at recent events, the Secretary of Agriculture and and Clinton as Secretary of State have been out there speaking of what we're going to do, what the U.S. will do to help solve the global food crises. We'll make our technologies available, our technologies of how to increase production, our latest advances in genetic engineering and nanotechnology and so forth. Well, this is... Exactly not the kind of direction that the ISTAD report was calling for, and and as you mentioned, the ISTAD report was very clear on we need to be redirecting our attention, our policy support, and our investments towards agroecological farming, towards more biodiverse and locally appropriate knowledge-based kinds of farming. So what can we do in the U.S. about it? It does seem like these are massive issues that are supposed to be worked out at the World Food Summit in Rome, right? Well, well, they're not in large part because our government, and it's not only the Obama administration, this is kind of we have had this obsession for, for many decades now with exporting this particular industrial model of agriculture. We need to make clear with our elected officials, with Congress, with President Obama and the advisors that surround him, that we are not on board with exporting more of this failed model of input chemical-intensive agriculture and pushing our GMOs on the rest of the world when the science shows us these are not the things that are going to solve the food crisis. You know, chemical pesticides and fertilizers are contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. Organic agriculture reduces that. Which do we want? We, we need to really get involved in pushing the kinds of solutions like organic, biodiverse, agroecological farming that can mitigate climate change and that can can help us weather the energy crisis that we're under. So what this means is when President Obama, for example, as he did recently, has nominated a representative from a vice president from CropLife, which is the major pesticide lobby association, nominated him to fill the position of Chief Agriculture Negotiator at the U.S. Office of the Trade Representative, we need to be speaking out. As many people have, Pan organized a petition along with a number of partner organizations, National Family Farm Coalition, Credo Food and Water Watch, and many others. And this petition to Obama said, you know, you promised us early on that, one, there would be no lobbyists in the White House, and this the individual from CropLife, Islam Siddiqui, was a former paid lobbyist for the pesticide uh, industry. He also said what we would have is a Department of Agriculture, not a Department of Agribusiness. But this appointment, and it's, it's one of a series of appointments that we've been seeing coming along in which Monsanto and other pesticide biotech industry representatives have been placed in very important, influential positions in the administration. These are not the kinds of appointments that are going to either ensure protection of public health and the environment. It's not going... These people are not able to look out for the public good, they're they're able to look out for the profit line of the multinational corporations that they represent. So we need to be speaking out and saying, this is not okay with us, what we want are individuals with the deep knowledge of what is really important and working in agriculture, with respect for the public good, and with an ability to shrug off all the influence peddling from big ag and the agribusiness, the farm lobby. So, in fact, quite to, I think, the administration's surprise, this little nomination of a crop life guy to this very influential position of agricultural trade negotiator generated a massive outpouring of public comment and concern, over 90,000 people contacted uh, the government, either signing the petition or contacting their senators directly. So I think on the positive side of things, what we're seeing is, I mean, this is is actually quite phenomenal, because no one has ever commented on what seems to be a very esoteric, wonky position, chief uh, negotiator for the U.S. Office of Trade, but is a very crucial one in terms of the kinds of policies that will be world it will affect rural people around the world, farm workers and will affect farmers and rural communities and urban consumers back at home. So for the first time we have you know we have ninety thousand people signing on. I think the US public really is waking up and making the connections and seeing that business as usual, agribusiness as usual is not going to get us where we need to go.
0: I should. Take a little break and just let our listeners know that we are talking to Marsha Ishi Eideman, who is a senior scientist with the Pesticide Action Network of North America based in San Francisco. Marsha, I, I have to agree, I was so disappointed. On the one hand, we have this wonderful model of a garden on the White House lawn. And what great praise the Obama administration should have for supporting that and supporting efforts to, you know, know your farm, know your farmer, know your food, know where it comes from. And yet, on the other hand, we've got almost like this Jekyll and Hyde kind of um, presentation where we've got this appointment or um, this nomination of a person who represents a very dangerous industry. And I, I speak in terms of danger in terms of exposing our children to pesticide residues and having compounds in our environment that are interacting with each other and having effects on our biology and future generations. And it's very troubling to me, both as a parent, both as a, and a registered dietitian, you know, who looks at nutrients and food and how they're produced and how that affects our health in the long run so i share your concern i do want to ask a question so i know that if we go to your website which is www.pana.org it's p as in peter dot org, we can learn more about different political appointments we can sign on to petitions is it better to sign a petition online or is it better to Go right to the president. Is it better to go right to WhiteHouse.gov? What is the best way to make our voices the loudest?
1: Well, I think you've named a number of really important actions that can be taken, and signing a petition has the power of being part of of a big movement. So when 90,000 other people sign that petition, that really wakes up the White House and, and they take notice. But also writing directly to your senator or or sending a letter directly to the White House it is that you could, by telling your own story, and whether it's as parent or a, you know, or a school teacher or a professional uh, public health worker, or so on. You have anyone who has an opinion about these things has the credibility of their own experience, and nothing can take that away. So it's very powerful to write your own story and get that directly to your. Congressperson, or or to the White House. So I would encourage all of those actions, and also joining up with with other organizations. So becoming a member of of Pesticide Action Network, for example, is one way to be a part of, of a movement. Uh, there are many other great organizations out there as well that are taking on these kinds of challenges and are trying to push towards policies and farming practices and just a different way of, of living that can bring us a more safe and sustainable future for our children. So one can act as an individual. That's very powerful. It's also very empowering to be a part of the movement. And I think what we really need to do more and more today is link movements and, and bring those who are looking at climate issues together with those who are looking at obesity in, in our children and, and those who are looking at energy issues or corruption in politics, a lot of these things are very closely uh, interconnected, in fact.
0: And that's the ecological way of looking at things, isn't it, that everything is connected?
1: That's right. Once you start looking at one thing and you start looking below to see what is the underlying cause of that, you see that many of the causes of the problem are interrelated as well as many of the solutions have common commonalities across different areas
0: you know with just five minutes left Marsha, i want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about your work on climate and agriculture and in the very latest issue of pan magazine there is an article that you have written on climate and agriculture would you like to you are the author of that are you not yes
1: i, I am the author along with another Senior Scientist at Pan Margaret Reeves, who are co-authors of the article.
0: Right. Please tell me about what were some of your your bottom-line findings with regard to climate and agriculture, and, again, what can we do as citizens to have an impact on our climate?
1: Well, this is a good example of, of the case of many issues being so interconnected because climate and agriculture are inextricably connected, and it turns out not only by biology and chemistry and and the physics behind it, but also by power, money, and politics. So it's the very same companies that brought us this chemical, energy, and water intensive kind of agriculture dependent upon toxic pesticides and GMOs that are responsible for exacerbating climate change, uh, industrial agriculture itself, and including the land use changes that are pushed by the market aspects of of industrial agriculture, are responsible for about a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, and that's often a shocking figure to people. The very narrow figure is 10 to 12%, comes from agriculture, a lot of it from the carbon dioxide associated with energy, transportation, and production of chemicals. Another key factor is nitrous oxide and methane that comes from, respectively, chemical fertilizers and livestock production. But it's actually much more than just 10 to 12%, although that in itself is significant. Once you add the land use change that is driven by, for example, in Latin America, the push to deforest great tracts of the Amazon in order to convert forest to soybean or cattle production, once you add the same kind of deforestation happening over in Southeast Asia to produce palm oil, then the figure quickly leaps up to a third of global emissions. So we're seeing the culpability here of the industrial model of agriculture, and one thing we're very concerned about is that in the uh, attempt to address climate change and come up with solutions, there has not been nearly enough attention paid both to the harms that, uh, from industrial agriculture and, on the flip side, the, the positive the solutions that uh, agroecological and organic farming can bring. So this is one sector where it's very exciting in that this is the one place where there's actually the potential to go from being a part of the problem to becoming a part of the solution. And this is what I talk about in the article. The the ways in which we are currently cooking the planet can be turned around if we start really getting serious about shifting from energy and chemical-intensive agriculture towards more organic agriculture, ecological farming, which sequesters carbon in the soil, so it actually captures carbon and holds it in the soil. It addresses some of the challenges that come along with with climate change, such as the temperature changes and the drought, by improving the water and moisture-holding and nutrient-holding capacity of the soils. And also, the other aspect is, you know, we're not, despite everything that Monsanto tends to say about, oh, we're going to be coming out with some climate-ready crop, GE crops any day now, After 10 years of research in this area, nothing has has come out of their labs that can begin to address climate change. And the reason is quite simple. You can't just solve what is a very complex interaction between nature and the environment and and agriculture with a simple, with one genetic change. What you really need is to develop the ecological resilience of the farming system, and and that includes the, the knowledge and the social, cultural approaches to agriculture that is a part and parcel of indigenous and locally-based farming systems. Mm-hmm. This is what can, can help us to deal with all the challenges we are going to be facing with climate, water, and energy shortages in the future. That
0: is a wonderful message to end and to send our audience off into the new year with some hope. And I want to thank you, Marcia, for being with me. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But I want to direct our listeners to your wonderful website. Again, that's the Pesticide Action Network of North America, or www.pana.org. I want to thank our listeners and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And, Marcia, thank you so very much for your work. And hopefully we will have many good things in the year ahead ahead with regard to changes in our agricultural production methods.
1: I'm certainly looking forward to that. I think we can do what needs to be done, and thank you very much for having me on the show.
0: Opening minds for over 30 years. This is 89.5 FM, KOPN, Colombia. The Imagination Station This program brought to you by listener support and a donation from the Missouri Theater Center for the Arts. Coming to the Missouri Theater, the Punch Brothers, featuring Chris Thiele, next Wednesday, January 13th. Hailed as wide-ranging and restlessly imaginative by the New Yorker, the Punch Brothers are sure to get your blood pumping to the bluegrass movements of this acoustic quintet fronted by a Grammy Award-winning musician, Chris Thiele, of Nickel Creek. Tickets and more info available at motheater.org or 573-875-0600.
1: KOPN Columbia is now podcasting local talk programming on the web. If you missed a program or want to enjoy listening to a variety of shows at your leisure, log on to KOPN.org and click on Podcasts. KOPN's local talk programs give voice to the mid-Missouri community on a rich variety of subjects,
0: from our own backyard to the world beyond.